Hello, random listeners, and also hopefully at least some of my students. Um, I'm here again. I'm Sasha, and I'm here again with the amazing CN Lester. Hi, thank you very much for having me. And we are going to be discussing Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> the best of things. The best of things, because he's <laughs> an abiding passion and also just the best thing in the world ever. So, um, we're going to try and keep this at least minimally focused on gender and sexuality, because that's just who we are. So, let's start to carry on the theme of our earlier discussions. Mm-hmm. How has Holmes been associated with queer or transgressive sexuality traditionally? Oh, wow. I mean, again, <laughs> it, it, that's a very big question. But, I mean, the first one that immediately springs to mind is... We, it, we're funny, we have a, a weird idea of like sort of Victorian literature, I think. We can put some in some boxes and some in others without realising they're actually written in very similar uh, time periods and sort of inhabiting the same kind of literary world. So I think, you know, it's really worth pointing out that Holmes is a fantasiacal creation. Yes. Um, you know, he is not uh, away from that milieu of sort of dank bohemians and opium dens and people being just too, too decadent. Like he is... <laughs> the child of that environment and he is and he navigates it he exactly and and conan doyle expressly codes him as an underworld bohemian so i'm thinking specifically of um the drug use obviously that's the that's the really obvious way uh we can have as far away in his home as the bohemian um but little tells as well the fact that he keeps his tobacco in a persian slipper the fact that he um he is not marrying i mean that's the before we even get into the idea of sort of does Holmes have sort of homoerotic and homosocial connotations, we have to talk about the fact that he refuses marriage, refuses sort of normative relationships with women, and yet Conan Doyle quite clearly shows the ways in which Holmes is very attractive to women. It's not that he, uh, you know, he's not he's failed he hasn't failed the race. He's kind of rejected the race altogether uh, to get married and settle down and be a good sort of um, go forth and multiply Victorian patriarch. Um, I'm just trying to, I mean, there there are so many different ways. It's hard. So Sasha, I mean, I'm struggling because I feel there are, there are a thousand and one different ways in which we can sort of talk about homes being potentially queer and very non-potentially, but canonically uh, subversive and countercultural. So what about you? How would you sort of introduce the reader to Holmes as not so much your cosy ITV detective drama, but really quite radical Victorian. Well, things I would like to—I would like to think of him not just as a radical Victorian, but as living and embodying aspects of the Victorian tradition of homosociality in a profound and actually quite interrogated way, because mm. of course he is living with Watson um, in what was at the time kind of like not a particularly like upmarket London area of London and a London that's presented as the great cesspool and he's so he's living and moving he's crosses class boundaries all the time mm-hmm. and he yep. crosses not just um class identities but also gender identities like there mm-hmm. are t- there are times when he's dressing as he's dressing as an old woman um, mm-hmm. he yep. also crosses kind of like racially identified areas like um there's a story in the adventures whose name momentarily escapes me where um he goes into an opium den and yes. it's quite interesting in terms of the representation of race. Is that like, not the adventure of the twisted lip? Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, it is no the worries. adventure of the twisted lip. Um, but you see him, so you see him navigating kind of all these different Londons and that makes him an inherently transgressive figure to start with. But what we mm. see of kind of his home life, it's 
it's homosocial. Um, it's mm-hmm. outside the institutional structures that were usually used to codify and make that homosociality acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's as you as you were saying, kind of it's um, it coexists with this explicit rejection of heteronormativity, an explicit mm-hmm. rejection of the kind of normative adult relationships which it was presented. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he does it all whilst kind of like wandering around in velvet dressing gowns and <laughs> <laughs> listening to operas and then um, Going just, off. Add, yep. just adds an extra an extra layer. You um, know, even even the choice of music makes me laugh, um, I think, because, you know, he has his monograph, I believe, on, on medieval music, which while we might think now, you know, has quite a... Oh, I, I almost suspect quite a sort of uh, a preachy early music kind of thing. You know, bear in mind that in real life you have Eric Satie in Fantasiacal Paris researching medieval music and incorporating that in his compositional style in a way that was heavily rejected uh, by his teachers at the Conservatoire for being too out there and too strange. Um, and then he and Watson go off and see Wagner together. You know, <laughs> Wagner, this incredible decadent um sort of artist, you know, all about death and love and, and the, you know, the, the pleasure of death. And, you know, that, that cheers me up no end that you have Holmes and Holmes and Watson going off to see Wagner, even as I dislike Wagner himself. Um, <laughs> I, I, the, little bits like that I find absolutely thrilling. I also really enjoy um, the the original Padgett illustrations. The contrast mm. between Holmes and Watson uh, in those. The fact that kind of Watson tends to be dressed kind of like quite quite formally. Watson is a standard Victorian gent um, mm. a lot of the time, and Holmes is quite often wearing something loose. You know, mm, there will be like a, 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 a padded a padded dressing gown, and there'll be like him with his angles smoking, just kind of mm-hmm. just inhabiting this kind of slightly informal, transgressive version of Victorian masculinity, and and I Absolutely. love it. I think it's and, I think it's fabulous. And the body language, yes. as you said, the the poses that Paget puts Holmes into are are so very different. They're so slouched. Um, yes. they're, they're so beautifully sort of off kilter. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, you speak to people about this. Many people say, how dare you say that Holmes is gay? And you're sort of going, no, no, this, this is a different sort of environment we're looking at. And that's a very reductive way of looking at what is in Conan Doyle's time sort of specific how, sort of specific cultural categories that, that don't map on so cleanly. Yes. Uh, to those modern ideas. But I think it is worth saying to anyone who sort of immediately sort of puts their back up and says, how dare you say that Holmes is gay? Um, the ways in which Holmes' attachment to Watson are made so clear by Conan Doyle are Three Garadebs. <laughs> Three Garadebs. And then Three I'm thinking Darragabs. of the, uh, the, the story, you know, do we have one or two stories which are supposedly written by Holmes himself? I think there's I two, and then there's two. that weird one that's in the third person where it used to be a play yes. or, or whatever. Um, but there's the one where he talks about Watson's only betrayal, and yes. Watson's only betrayal is to Being get married. Being that he got married. Yeah, and it's it's such, I mean, it's just so cleanly said. And, you know, I think we can dance around that, we can do that terrible thing of, um, I remember my English class when I was a teenager, and we were talking about, the Shakespeare sonnets that were written to a young man and the teacher was doing her, you, oh, you know, well, men in those days were just very good friends, the kind of friends who wrote romantic things to them, such good friends. Thou um, must, the mistress of my passion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, no, completely. And I just, I think it's really important to say there that, you know, nobody is adding anything extra to Conan Doyle stating plainly that Holmes sees Watson's marriage as a betrayal. 
Yes, it's absolutely. It's just there. It's just openly written. And that there's the great love that lies behind that cold mask. And it was mm-hmm. worth the wound for Watson to fight. Like, that, that still, <laughs> like, I think my, my, yeah, my childhood copy of Holmes just, it falls open on that page of the Garadabs, which I think possibly oh. tells you everything about my teenage life that you might need to know. Um, <laughs> but it's brilliant. Absolutely. I think Absolutely. I mean, also one of the things that kind of we're looking at here is the way in which kind of culture policed the um, Victorian masculine body and its gender expression and the way in which mm-hmm. both in the illustrations and to some extent in the text Holmes is shown as crossing those boundaries routinely mm. he doesn't yes. express himself in um, you know, even as the standard uh, expression of Victorian masculine authority he mm. moves differently he throws himself around he's uh, as you say kind of in the illustrations he has those beautifully decadent poses mm. and and then you get like images of him like with the cocaine on the sofa mm-hmm. like there's something that is so it runs so explicitly and openly counter to the cultural embodiment that victorian masculinity would encourage to take mm. up and i think and, that's and yet yeah, there are the sort of the the elements of of homes which you know We'll come to the Guy Ritchie films in a in a second, but that we sort of go on to is you know Holmes the the hypermasculine, you know Holmes who is the fighting champion, Holmes who is a martial arts expert, and yet they are contained within that. It's not that he cannot, um, you know, also be a master, but that doesn't equate to a normative masculinity. Yes. Again, it's it's quite interesting the ways in which that's framed within the books, and I always think as well, you know. He, you know, there are points where Watson says that Holmes doesn't like women, and then yet at other points where Holmes is is shown to be deeply compassionate and deeply respectful to various different women that he works yes. with. But it is notable that the only one he takes a real interest in being Irene Adler, who herself crosses class and gender categories within her work. Um, you know, she is a contralto. She has uh, a voice type which is deeply androgynous. Uh, she would have played male roles on stage as well as female roles. She plays male roles in her life of crime, um, you know, she dresses up as a as a boy and hoodwinks Holmes, um, and she's class, uh, you know, crossing these these class categories in her relationships as well, and in her her various different schemes. Um, and I I love that 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 she you know she becomes the one that Holmes understands as his equal in that story. Do you know I've never thought about that. This is what this is why I need you, Sienna. I, I literally had not <laughs> like the thing about contralto and that being like inherently. Um, well, having a level of androgyny would not have occurred to me well it, it's you know it was a very popular voice it's it's not popular as a voice type sort of so much any longer but it was more popular in the victorian era um but yes yeah, so you know as a star contralto she would have sung um you know probably the orfeo uh she would have sung julius caesar she would have sung all these roles of the beautiful man on stage showing her legs so she yes. also would have been sexually transgressive there as well and making love to other women on stage you yes. know, it's really, um, you know, uh, I mean, the the thing, if, if people who are listening are not so familiar with opera, uh, the roles assigned to, to mezzos and contraltos are top, you know, they're usually referred to as um, witches, bitches and britches. So <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> yeah, we, we play all the best roles. Um, so <laughs> and that's Irene Adler. And I really like that. Yes. And I think there's... The fact that where uh, that Holmes manages to navigate all these different because I mean, for all that I keep talking about the way in which culture policed the Victorian masculine body and it did, and um, there were also 
a number of transgressive spaces within, particularly within Victorian London, but also within kind of like mm. Victorian culture more widely. Opera being like a really good example of mm-hmm. where people could um, disregard like normative to some to some extent like normative gender expectations or allow force mm. space to work outside them. And what home what um, Conan Doyle does with homes is like create a new space where that can happen mm. because this shit is you know. And the way that he does it is 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 new and interesting and mm-hmm. important. Um, and I, you know, I do always wonder as well, you know, why it is that the homes. I mean, there obviously there is the element that in which the home stories are wonderful puzzle pieces, and so they're intensely addictive to read because you know who did it. I need to find out and I need to see how beautifully it all works together and it gets presented to me on a silver platter because Holmes has worked it out. Um, so that is deeply appealing. I think Holmes is deeply appealing as a reader stand-in. You know, I, I certainly read it and go, oh yeah, I want to be like that. I want to be unbelievably intelligent and capable of taking on anything and seeing things that other people can't. Um, but it also interests me that Conan Doyle and his writing created Holmes who is so much more interesting than his other heroes. You know, his other fiction writing, The Lost World is a great conceit, but I think character-wise isn't so interesting. And then his historical novels just aren't very interesting. It, they're all quite standard, And then, but it is the figure of Holmes. It's not just that it's a murder mystery, it's that. Yeah, oh. absolutely. And I, I've always... I, I read um, Stephen Fry in his autobiography, My Was My Washpot, said this, which then made me feel justified. Like, you read um, Holmes not so much even for the detective stories, but for the glimpses of Baker Street and for the relationship between Holmes and Watson. Um, Absolutely. I'm nodding so much here. I just, <laughs> you know, when Mrs. Hudson has put out, uh, you know, there's a there's a cold roast on the sideboard and, you know, they're still in time to catch the second half of Tannhäuser or whatever it is, or Parsifal, <laughs> I can't remember. Um, you know, or again, Guy Ritchie takes, takes up in his film, Holmes shooting a VR into the wallpaper. Um, yes. Because, you know, he's in one of his moods and he's testing. <laughs> something um it is such a glorious atmosphere i mean who doesn't want to live in 221b baker street well absolutely i think kind of also there is an extent to which holmes is a really he's a powerful figure because kind of like he centers so much of the social and cultural and scientific change that was going on at the time in a figure that gives you ways of dealing with it ethically and comfortably and compassionately like there is a way where it, for me anyway Holmes has become this profound figure of safety mm. partly because I mean, of his association I, with transgression but also because kind of he provides a focal point for that I mean I will note I think that's an appropriate point maybe to note the fact that I would say that's true for 99% of the stories and then there is that one story which was a later edition which is profoundly racist um, and is always quite shocking because the other stories, while very much of their time, um, are more sort of indicative of Conan Doyle's sort of quite progressive politics when it came to race. Uh, again, certainly for a man of his class and his whiteness and, and his sort of position. Um, so yes, I, I, would, I would agree with that with the caveat that there is that very, there is a very nasty story in there, which is... Yes, no, uh, I think that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, yeah. Conan Doyle, yeah, was a very big letdown from him. Yeah, that's. I think maybe this would be a good point to move on then. So if this is the mm-hmm. this is the base material that we are all work, that um, people are working with, how do mm. adaptations of Holmes <laughs> deal with all these questions? I mean, oh. race is race is quite a good one to start with actually, because maybe we could discuss for a little bit elementary. Please, and please go which, ahead. Elementary deals with both the transgressive sexuality and Holmes's relationship with Watson. 
but mm-hmm. also race. I mean, do you have any thoughts about this, Ian? As opposed to just saying, I really love elementary. I think it does an incredibly good job of updating the source material in a way which is legible as a modern a modern adaptation which speaks to its own space in the way that the original spoke to their own space. And I love the relationship between Watson and Holmes in it. I love the relationship between Holmes and the NYPD. I think it really captures what makes the what makes the original so enticing and so addictive to read i think they they managed to get that yes absolutely i feel i feel very much the same um what i one of the things i really really like about this i'm about to massively spoil it anybody who has not seen any of elementary um but one of the things i really like is the fact that kind of even though they have um an apparently heterosexual man and woman in the Holmes and Watson roles because Watson is played by uh, Lucy Liu um they don't make it sexual they don't make it romantic mm. they make it this kind of really nuanced and sophisticated relationship between two people who love each other which is a thing that is spoken in like you know, the um I think it's 613 I did look it up um <laughs> but it's never about do they get together is this a romance mm. how do they deal with sex it's not about that it's about the the ways in which you can have an intimate and knowing and, and kind relationship with somebody even if you're living with them in the same house. And I think that's beautiful. Mm. And I think that's absolutely a much more accurate <laughs> and engaging take on um, on what Conan Doyle was doing than what, mm. for example, Sherlock does, um, and certainly mm. a number of other a number of other things. Um, and, and I think it's it's interesting that. Um, when the cast and crew discuss this, it's always something that's brought up. Everybody always mm. wants to know. Like if you if you look up the press, going right from the first season, everyone kind of wants to know whether or not they're going to fuck. And mm-hmm. the cast and crew are just like, that's not what we're doing. That's not the story that we want to tell. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's that in itself is really in today's heteronormative culture, mm. as we have previously discussed. Mm-hmm. That in yep. itself is powerful, interesting. Saying that human relationships can be about more than <laughs> is, you know, I like that. It makes me happy. I mean, something I think specifically thinking about the sort of racialized casting and, and even just looking at Lucy Liu's previous sort of casting options in which she, you know, the, the ways in which she has been cast previously is certainly at the beginning of her career, you know, she was very much cast into those racialized gendered tropes of either sort of exotic bloom or dragon lady. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's these deeply racist ideas of, of how East Asian women should be under a white male gaze, um, you know, both deeply uh, attractive and either deeply attractive and just an exotic flower or deeply attractive and terrifying, like her role in Ally McBeal. Um, and one of the things I love seeing her playing Watson is that she gets to play the kind of role which, you know, women too often don't get to play, but women of colour in particular too often don't get to play and don't get cast at, which is such a deep and nuanced character. Um, she, interestingly enough, as well, I find, is that she is not... So often when you have a, a, a female character uh, given a space to be a whole human being, almost like women are whole human beings... Steady she's... on, <laughs> Don't let's get carried away. Um, you know, it's so often she's desexualized or, or made into a kind of, oh, she's almost as good as a man. Uh, and, and I love that they don't do that. You know, Joan is herself. Joan Watson is herself in all the different ways in which she is herself um, without either sort of becoming a desexed character or becoming reliant on homes or, yes. you know, it, 
she's wonderful. She's absolutely wonderful. She's the Watson we all deserve, frankly. Yes, and I, I just love her. I think also um, she's the Watson that we need in culture absolutely. at this particular point. Yeah. And, you know, dare I say it, it's the terrible thing. I mean, there's the thousand and one jokes uh, on queer Twitter about people who claim that they're queering heterosexuality. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I feel like a terrible person for saying this, but is it queering heterosexuality? <laughs> maybe just a little bit to imply that you can have a man and a woman who are soulmates, but aren't going to fall in, you know, to bed together and, and be like, oh, I needed you to complete me. Yes, it's not going to be. It's not going to be about romantic love. And it's not. Mm. <sighs> and yet it is. And it's. Yet got, it is. It, it's 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 yeah it's very well done i think they've they've picked up on that ambiguity very very well yes i think that's brilliant so that's one of the ways in which people can deal with the transgressive sexuality at and and transgressive qualities that Coda doyle put into homes mm. um i'm i feel we ought to talk about guy ritchie because we need to yeah we do what should we talk about, Guy Ritchie? Like, oh where do we God. even start? Yes. Um, oh, okay. I think we should start actually with um, maybe you could give an overview of uh, what the game, what um, Sherlock Holmes and Game of Shadows are, are doing, and then I can ask you lots of invasive questions about Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, and because you are a film oh buff in ways God. I am not, and therefore you know the loading that they were bringing to this role, and then we can discuss kind of what we would, what, uh, what's going on in the movie, possibly. With oh my clips. God! There would be clips. I mean, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think. You know, how, how do we give an overview of these? Um, well, it was really funny when it was announced. I think because a lot of people, myself included, went Guy Ritchie. He's the guy that did Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and also married Madonna and made one of the worst films ever as a as a uh, vehicle vehicle for madonna um and so it seemed like a very odd casting decision to sort of to get him on board as the director um but then he made these two movies which while being full of sort of typical guy ritchie flourishes work really really well and they actually they take a lot of source material from the books uh including just whole lines at different points <laughs> um they while sort of updating them and you know doing an awful lot of steampunk style victoriana um but doing I, it so I, well <laughs> i i just love it i love them they are absolute sort of cinematic confectionery delights for want of a better word, they're like a lovely big old bar of chocolate you can just eat. Um, yeah, I mean, in them, it's very interesting to me. I mean, I, I don't know how much we want to start talking about sort of the casting and, and the sort of the meaning behind it, but I, I suppose when looking specifically at homes and gender and, and sexuality and looking at, at these films, the things that always come up for me are the past histories of the stars and the director, which inevitably will influence readings depending on what you know about them uh, both of their work and of of the sort of the lives they've led uh the second being uh i think you know deliberate choices they've made within the film to highlight elements of holmes and watson's relationship and to highlight elements of sort of um holmes uh yeah subversion and and his sort of progressive radical nature and third i always end up thinking then about the ways in which we see films the way that we receive them within our own lives and how the circumstances around that will lead us to seeing the films in different ways um and that's something i find particularly interesting with with these films on a personal level and then thinking about that on a wider social context i feel i should 
add for um, any any listeners who do not in fact know us to some extent these this um the first guy Ritchie film is the reason that we're friends because we it went to see, because we went to see it and we were the it was only, the second one it was a game of shadows it was the second it was one game yeah. of shadows mm-hmm. um and we were the only people in the cinema that got the anal jokes <laughs> <laughs> it was a, <laughs> And it was yeah. amazing. And yeah, we, we laughed mightily. And <laughs> then we went to the pub to laugh some more and go, we, that really happened, didn't it? That was actually in that film. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, really, in front of us. Um, so, yeah, that was that's part of the loading that, I was, that I'm bringing to it <laughs> as an audience. Um, can you say something maybe about... Robert Downey Jr. And, and Jude Law. Like, I first encountered Jude Law in Wild because mm-hmm. I watched that film obsessively. Oh, me too. When it came out. <laughs> and he was so pretty and he was yep. such an asshole. And um, for anyone who hasn't seen this, uh, Jude Law plays Lord Alfred Douglas. So Bosie, you know, Wild's undoing the young man who, who broke him. You know, he's just too beautiful to be allowed. Uh, and that was Jude Law's introduction to, to the wider sort of world in terms of a, of a cinema actor. Um, and then it's very interesting that over the next couple of years, in terms of his big hitters, he had Gattaca. Um, but then the two other ones that were really big sort of in his breakout stage were Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, in which he plays Kevin Spacey's boy toy uh, in the Deep right. South, uh, com- complete with the most appalling accent you have ever heard a British actor try and put on <laughs> to convince that they're actually American. But the camera is all like lingering shots of his beautiful face and how he's all sweaty and it's all, it is it is pure, just pure queer eroticism. Um, and then he was also in uh, Talented Mr. Ripley, written by a very famous lesbian author and, and you know, it, uh, a film, a book and a film just full of murderous homoeroticism. Um, so I think you know Jude Law, to me, is always going to have that cultural weight of the former. The, it's the former queer pretty boy, really, yes. um, grown up, and it, it, that's a deep cultural connotation. I do wonder if that's one of the reasons why he was chosen to play Dumbledore in the Fantastic Beasts films. Well, um, yes, absolutely. The Fantastic Beasts mm-hmm. films, that, as we have discussed. Don't do actually not, then allow Dumbledore <laughs> to be queer, but I yes, do wonder absolutely. about that casting decision. Uh, and then Guy Ritchie again, I think is really interesting. So a director who was married to the biggest gay icon in the world, and that is yes. that is something which I find quite interesting. <laughs> but but Guy Ritchie's way of doing like performative hypermasculinity is in and of itself really funny. So looking at things like Layer Cake or, or Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, they're parodies of hypermasculinity. And, you know, you're never quite sure who who's in on the joke, but I suspect he's in on the joke. And they're enjoyable, precisely, I think, because they are so completely over the top and ridiculous. Um, and, like, really, you know, men being real men together, you know, it's 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 got a lot of that going on. Um, so you've got that as director. And then Robert Downey Jr., who I think it's fair to say he's not... You know, we see him playing Holmes and he's not so much playing Holmes as British as he's using the same accent that he used in Chaplin, uh, which I always find fascinating. It's not a British accent. It's a very specific, mannered uh, accent that that he developed for Chaplin, which he's just kept as his de facto, you know, now I'm going to be Holmes with that accent. Um, But we were talking a little bit, you know, so many things that that stand out to me is one, that Downey Jr.'s performance is so close to 
if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Isle Norwood's uh, performance as Holmes in the silent movie era, uh, whose performances uh, he also performed on stage as Holmes, whose performances Conan Doyle was a fan of and approved of. Um, and given uh, Downey Jr.'s history of engaging with silent cinema, I really don't believe that that's an accident that he is uh, utilising so many of the tricks that Norwood used as Holmes. But then we have Downey Jr.'s both sort of film history and his own history. So for those that don't know, he came out as bisexual back in the day and then walked back from it sort of several years after that. Um, and, you know, make of that what you will. But that has certainly given him a sort of certain level of at one point inhabiting a sort of a queer space. Um, and his films have frequently been very queer. So I'm thinking again of his breakout role as a serious actor, as opposed to a, a comic actor in Lesson Zero, in which he's playing a character who is um, either que certainly queer coded and then either is queer or is gay for pay um, as part of the tragic sort of Brett Easton Ellis level of that film. Uh, he then went on to play uh, a queer character in Home for the Holidays, which was directed by Jodie Foster. So again, there's there's some nice levels of that. Uh, and then he uh, played queer again in Wonder Boys, um, which uh, he then mocks in Tropic Thunder, uh, which is, if you haven't seen that section, please look it up because Satan's Alley needs you to have a look at what they were making fun of. Um, so, but here is an actor who, whose masculinity on screen is so frequently portrayed as both effeminate and subversive. Um, so those sort of three things coming together but is some... very hard for me as someone who has seen those films not to see Richie's Home and, Holmes and Watson as just intensely queer <laughs> intensely yes. intensely intensely queer and that's beyond before we even get to the directorial choices of putting Holmes in drag of making Watson and Holmes slow dance of using <laughs> terms like beard uh, of having Danny Jr. on the campaign tour for the movie talking about how they wrestle and share a bed and that's then drop a arch hints. <laughs> that's worth looking up if you haven't seen it. That's brilliant. Mm. But also the clothes, the way in which they dress homes. Mm. It's so decadent Victorian gentleman. It's all kind yeah. of like velvets and textures and like loosely knotted cravats and mm. slightly they, they smudgy full, eyeliner. They went full down the road of, you know, here is Holmes. Uh, here is Holmes, the bizarre eccentric genius. Uh, isn't he bohemian? Isn't he not to be taken into polite society? Which, you know, I think you can sit in the cinema and watch this, um, and well, or not in the cinema, in fact, at home and stream it on your device and think, oh, that's too much. And then you, some of the words, you actually go back and you see they're in the books. And I loved that. I thought that yes. was brilliant. There were some particular lines, and it, like the scene again where he shoots the VR into the wall, where you think, oh God, that's so Hollywood. And you're like, oh no, no, Conan Doyle wrote that. <laughs> Um, I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. And then I think, again, there's sort of this third element, which I think is really important in queer. I mean, it's important. It is art. It's, it's how we engage with any form of art. But it is very important when we start talking about queer theory and queer lives is where are we where we see this piece of art and, and you know, how do we engage based on what we've experienced? So, again, this film, I think, imagining, here's my imaginary, my imaginary 16-year-old 
who has not seen any of these films, and maybe this imaginary 16-year-old is a straight straight boy, and he's only seen the Avengers films, and he only knows uh, Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, and again, does not see Iron Man as a kind of parodic masculinity, but, but is like just straight up Iron Man's a cool dude with bulky muscles, um, and will end up seeing a completely different film from me, who not only has this sort of cinematic background, but saw sort of was introduced to Robert Downey Jr.'s films by an ex of mine who had a huge crush on him. So, you know, I I think the entire sort of introduction I had to, to the Robert Downey Jr.'s acting style was through a kind of, you know, well, he, he, he did not say a crush. He was like, oh, I just, you know, I have a, you know, hero worship thing. You're like, oh, yes. looks a lot like a crush to me. Um, but okay, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to watch RDJ movies, you know, in bed post coitly. Right. <laughs> that doesn't that's gonna give me a hugely different emotional response to this film than our than our imaginary sixteen year old boy who who doesn't have that background uh, and I, it's that personal intersecting of like personal history with the art form that I think is really exciting I think that's absolutely true, but I also think that like game of shadows specifically creates so many spaces where it's difficult to read oh. scenes as straight in any way. I, I absolutely mean, agree with you. I mean, they doubled down. They, they did, <laughs> they so did it in the first film and then you could just see them going, should we do it like 100% more? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's have a, let's have a scene where it kind of like, it looks, it, it looks like we've been caught having sex, but actually, no, we're not. We're just going to shoot you because that's never been used as a metaphor for ejaculation ever in the history mm-hmm. of cinema. Mm-hmm. Or, like, lie down with me, Watson. <laughs> 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 the kind of post-coital cigarettes. The, uh, um... Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is probably me going way too far. But even, you know, it's probably... If, I mean, unless the music choice person, if, if this is, like, actually on the money... I will be so happy. I mean, I doubt it is. But again, reread things into it. Um, the scene where Moriarty is torturing Holmes, they're playing Schubert. And Schubert is very famously one of m- music history's... Was he gay? He wrote <laughs> songs about Ganymede and he hung out with all these gay men. And you know, <laughs> So, you know, there, there were just all these little choices which kind of underpin uh, a very queer world. And like sometimes that queer world is literally visible on screen, like the the bit where they go to um, <laughs> the "Would your beard be with us all night, Holmes?" scene, <laughs> yes. where they end up in this um, underground club with kind of very queer coded waiters, right? Like the, I mean, I mean, I'm I not, don't think even queer coded. I think it's just flat out, just flat out transgressive. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. they're just super they're just super queer yes (laughs) like yeah um and oh bear in mind they actually keep in watson's gambling habit and that's again the watson while the upright soldier he's not he's not boring he's not to look at the kate beaton comic he's not stupid watson no you know he is a dashing and dangerous man um which you see in sort of on full display in this scene when they go out drinking well, I think that's one of the things that um, Elementary and um, Game of Shadows like have in common, the fact that they keep Watson as a three-dimensional character and so mm. often adaptations of Holmes don't so much or they deliberately subordinate him to Holmes. Which I feel has to be, surely has to be to dilute the tension between them. 
that interesting you say that. <laughs> I was thinking at that point about the Jeremy Brett versions, whether or not they did that. And they do. And despite the kind of the... I mean, I can't help looking at Jeremy Brett and think of him as queer. Partly mm. because of the open bisexuality thing and because he's very pretty and very, <laughs> very camp <laughs> when he's playing Holmes. But because kind of Watson is just so subordinated, because you don't see very much, well, it, it does kind of like ratchet down the tension that would otherwise be kind of like filling mm. the screen. Mm. Um, but here, I, they, they, they don't, they just don't do that in Game of, in Game of Shadows. And No, I mean, they're, they're, are a, they're, uh, they're an heroic and romantic couple. Yes. And they, they don't make any point of hiding that. Um, and I, I love that. I and absolutely the, like, love that. The way in which those films deal with what Conan Doyle describes, Holmes describing as Watson's betrayal. <laughs> like the bit where, <laughs> the bit where kind of Holmes pushes her out of the train for example, mm-hmm. and like the mm-hmm. ongoing res- across the films, like the ongoing resentment, o- like open resentment mm-hmm. that Holmes has for Watson's marriage and for Watson's kind of a- attempts to have any kind of heteronormative, like mm-hmm. heteronormative life. I mean, there's that that scene where they're going to see um, Mycroft, I think it is. It starts mm-hmm. with the um, beard thing, and they they discuss heteronormativity, and like Holmes is openly cross with Watson for kind of mm. running for running off and getting married and then they end up discussing the beard and being it's so overt it's covert and you're right. like oh, yes <laughs> yeah I mean, that line <laughs> what are we discussing here I exactly. wonder um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just beautiful mm-hmm. and it's not like you couldn't if you were really 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 determined be like no no no, no. Mm-hmm. there's a surface meaning and that's all there is mm-hmm. but the, t- the film is encouraging you to see it in this kind of three-dimensional, um, really queer-loaded and emotionally-loaded way. Mm-hmm. And it's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that just... It seems a much more interesting take on the Holmes mythos than, mm-hmm. you know, certainly than the... Uh, oh, Holmes is a completely asexual character with no significant emotional attachments. In fact, he's kind of basically kind of a psychopath and... It, just, no, it, no. It, I mean, one, you know, I, I suspect we're speaking of Stephen Moffat here. We are um, speaking of Stephen Moffat. I, I, um, I just try not to bitch too much because, you know, yeah. I'm I an mean, adult, uh, but also. I mean, one, the ways in which, you know, I think the media throws around, you know, oh, Holmes is probably autistic and asexual with Holmes is therefore cold and has no feelings is really I shitty. Guess. What really, really shitty. So let's not do that. And also, you know, let's not in, not not let the people who do that sort of get away with that because, no, it, it's not on. Um, but two, I mean, I did try and watch some of the... I admit I don't know a huge amount about the Moffat Sherlock simply because I couldn't watch it. I didn't find it. It felt deeply disrespectful to the source material and instead a lot closer to what would come about from someone who has... Um, been working with the sort of the pop cultural depictions of Holmes over the years as they've mutated, yes. but it isn't actually what was in the texts. Uh, and I, I just didn't enjoy it, so I didn't watch it. Which no. I recommend it heartily to everyone. If you don't enjoy it, just turn it off. Also, like the second, I mean, I watched the first one with some friends, and it was a bit like, mm. and then the second one has this what appeared to me, and I'm not a person with this background, but it seemed to be kind of quite a racist, the way in which kind of it described kind of like Chinese culture, it seemed to be kind of quite racist and marginalising, and it was a bit like, you don't, I then watched the episode with Irene Adler, Adler it's a bit like, well if you're gonna fuck up on race, and then you're mm. gonna fuck up on gender, like, I, I've 
got nothing left to give to this show, really. Mm. And but I think it, it interestingly going back to this idea of Holmes as cold. I, I suspect again that this is a way of de of denaturizing the relationship between Holmes and Watson. It makes it less yes. threatening. It makes it safer. But at no point in the stories is Holmes an unfeeling character. You know, yes. we see the depth of his feeling over and over and over again. Yes, uh, we see absolutely. his incredible control, and we, you know, if we're going to take the route that that you know many Holmesians do, and let us take this route that Watson <laughs> is, you know, Watson is the actual author of the stories. You know, you do see the change from the the very beginning of Study in Scarlet, in which Holmes can appear as quite standoffish and and sort of unfeeling, um, and then you see the way it changes all the way through. Which you know, if you if you want to be a, a Holmesian about it, is Watson learning more about him? And if you want to talk about Conan Doyle, I believe it's the fact that Doyle wrote himself into a corner and had to had to realise that actually no, his character was bigger than that. Yes, absolutely. And well, I suppose he was writing these kind of what well into the last one was nineteen it was twenty seven, right? Mm-hmm. The case mm-hmm. book. So mm-hmm. there's an extent to which by that by that time he'd um he had this character that was a legend mm. and he had this dynamic between the characters that was profoundly influential and that for many people had like great great personal significance like the fact that when Holmes went over the Reichenbach Falls there were people walking around with black armbands on mm-hmm. for years mm-hmm. and that's I mean I, I'm, I'm sure in, in some ways that was quite difficult to manage but like it yeah. did mean that kind of like he came back to this character that was compassionate and engaged mm. and like mm. ethically responsible in mm. terms of like how he like how he used his talents and kind of the things that he was prepared to like sacrifice for the well-being like it, it's mm. you get My this favorite, kind of really three-dimensional character favorite 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 homes thing is when uh women end up there is, is it one story or there's several stories where women who've been abused by men take their deadly revenge and he conveniently does not do anything about it <laughs> yes absolutely uh um, yes <laughs> and, and things here and he openly states that as well you, yeah, you're it, given yeah, it's not, mm, you're you, given you, this viewpoint that like actually what matters is not like the institutional perspective or even the legal perspective what matters is morality and ethics and like mm. human human relationships and that's what Holmes is focused on and and it, and again in a deeply subversive way this is not masculinity by the book this is you know, someone taking an autonomous decision to uphold, yeah, ethical values rather than the rule of law. Yeah. Um, which, again, is, great. I think, uh, something that both Guy Ritchie and Elementary do very well, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why they're the ones we're talking about, because they're the ones yeah. that have the depth to... And, and then I would just like to add to anyone who who's interested in sort of continuing their media exploration of Holmes, is there is an extremely good film... Um, starring Ian McKellen called Mr. Holmes. I believe it's called Mr. Holmes. Let me just yes, look at it. It is, it is called Mr. It Holmes. Is, um, which is absolutely gorgeous. It's one of those absolutely wonderful uh, pieces of very quiet filmmaking, which is um, totally absorbing from start to finish without having any sort of bangs and shocks and excitement, and, and yet is deeply compelling. And it's an elderly Holmes without Watson because Watson has died. And oh my god! It, okay, it, that in itself is tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think I've got that right. I really think I've got that right. And if I haven't got, but there's no Watson, and Holmes is alone and in his dotage, um, really trying to solve one final crime because he's been asked to, but he can't. He he is incapable. His memory is going, um, and he is very queer coded. Not only because of McKellen, 
Um, but within the film, there is this very sad moment um, where there's a suspicion around him. And also not spoken, but, but illustrated cinematically, uh, a suspicion of him being allowed to be alone with a, with a young boy in that kind of idea that queer people are always predatory pedophiles. And it, it's so well shot and it's so well done and it speaks tremendously to to Holmes' um, depiction as a as a lonely bohemian without sort of safety nets around him. And having it's lost... It's a very good film. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But I think also that uh, having He's lost not... the mm-hmm. the um, environment and the people which, ma- which gave that meaning and his ability mm. to navigate the fact that he's, he's trapped there with his own history and with his own... Mm. And with his bees, obviously, and he's with, his, with bees. his bees. But again, and that's, that's another really fascinating point, but it's just a very lonely old man with his bees and his memories, which don't work anymore. Um, which is heartbreaking. It is. It's a brilliant film. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and I, again, if you're interested in how Holmes is seen in the media, it's a real love letter. So I, I would recommend it. Yes. Um, I think this would be probably a good note to end on because like, I think what so. better note to end on than Ian McKellen breaking everybody's hearts? Like, yep. Obviously. I mean, could you think of a better person to play Holmes in his older years? Absolutely not. Like, no. literally not. Mm-hmm. Like, who? <laughs> There's just no other, no other option. Mm. Um, I mean, we could do. We could just finish on a high note by talking about fantasy castings of Holmes. And yet, can we think of any fantasy casting which would be better than Robert Downey Jr., Johnny Lee Miller, or Ian McKellen? Well, I don't think I can. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I mean, <laughs> as a I'm connoisseur. I thought you might say Tilda Swinton. I would. I would. I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say, like, as a connoisseur of, of tall androgynous actors, actually, also <laughs> Helen Mirren. Like, if we're going to. Uh, sorry, Ooh, I, just, I think I, Helen Helen Mirren can do a great job. Oh, she yes. would be so good. Mm, mm, yes, I I could be here for this. Yeah, but mm-hmm. that, it, I, I feel it kind of like it, it, you'd need you'd need to go androgynous. You'd need to go. Um, you know, I can't think of any male actors that I want to do that mm. I want to do homes that have not seen it. What about you? Have we missed anything? No, I don't think so. Actually, I think I think that pretty. You know, Ian McKellen is always going to be one of my favourites for anything. So, if at any point anyone would like to use a time machine uh, to do a younger Ian McKellen as Holmes with Patrick Stewart as Watson, because who are oh we kidding? God. We all know that's yes. what we want. But if they wanted yes. to do one now where they come oh back my- for one last adventure, um, I would, I would kiss that person and, and bring them flowers and, and make them and tell them they're very special. Can we do that? Can we like, tweet them and tell them that this is the thing that they should do? Because how good I would that be? I suspect we'll be neither the first nor the last. Yeah, that's probably true. Oh. Well, mm. on 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 that note, thank you so much for thank you so much for showing asking up me. and talking about Sherlock Holmes because you know what Any better thing is there to do with time. our time? Exactly. <laughs> thank you, Sasha. Thank you.